Hi, I'm Ted Price from Insomniac Games. On today's episode of the Game Maker's Notebook, I got a chance to talk to Matthias de Johan from Guerrilla. Matthias is the game director for the Killzone series and the Horizon series. And most recently, he directed the gorgeous game Horizon Forbidden West. Matthias and I talked about what it was like to build a sequel to such a successful first game in the series. Matthias shared the decision-making process behind balancing familiar features the team knew would be important to fans of the first game with new features that would keep things fresh for everyone. We went into depth on many of the game's standout features, and Matthias shared Gorilla's approach to delivering such an immense and ambitious game with Horizon Forbidden West. Please join us. I'm running out of time, Elizabeth. The land is dying. People are suffering. Soon, they'll starve. And the machines meant to help us are out of control. I have to find a way to fix it all. And the answer is somewhere out in the Forbidden West. Mateus, thank you very much for agreeing to join and, and jumping onto the podcast. Well, thanks a lot for the uh, invite. It feels like an honor to be here. So, Well, you've, you've done a lot in the industry, and I look forward to being able to talk to you about just your philosophy, your, how you run things, but in particular about Horizon Forbidden West, which has been such, for me as a player, such an amazing experience. It's a beautiful game, so well-constructed. And uh, I, I, I want to talk, I want to start with just going back a bit and talking about your, your history. So you were game director on Killzone Liberation, Killzone 2, and Killzone 3. And those games are so different from Horizon, the series, uh, where you were also the game director. So what kind of mental and emotional shift did you and the team have to go through to make the transition between such different games? Yeah, the... Um... The games are very, very different. And I think you know, uh, after making three Killzone games, or actually four, because I was also uh, working on Killzone Mercenary at some point as sort of an external game director. Um, after doing those four games, uh, I think a lot of people in the team that had been with us for quite a while, they kind of felt like we were ready for a change. Um, we were a little bit bothered by the fact, for example, that on the box cover of the Killzone games, we always had sort of the uh, the Hellgast, the enemy, that we didn't have a cool main character. Um, we had these sort of uh, tough uh, military guys as the leads in our games. And at some point, we felt like we needed to do something different. And I think uh, Horizon um, and the concept for Horizon 
when we first uh, all looked at that, it felt so fresh and so different. And it, it sort of addressed a lot of the things that we uh, were starting to get a little bit bored by in a way, or that we were bothered with. Um, also, the sort of the, the gray, grayish, brownish environments in Killzone. At some point, we kind of felt like we, we, we had seen them. Um, but I think design-wise, we were also very much uh, interested and very much looking forward to like new challenges, like okay, let's, if we go open world or if we have a, yeah, just a third person camera instead of a first person camera, what kind of new opportunities uh, are we looking at and how do we sort of uh, deal with that as designers and as developers? Um, and uh, to, yeah, for a number of roles, we, we had to recruit, uh, like for writing, we didn't have a dedicated writing team. Um, so we went out and uh, had hunted uh, uh, yeah, the, our writing team, basically, uh, and that was a, that was a, a really good move. Uh, we hired uh, quest designers because we had never built quests. We were just linear, linearly uh, kind of scripting missions. So we had to hire some external talent that 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 had more experience with making those games. But at the same time, I think for a lot of people in the team, it was just a great challenge just to do something new and fresh. Um, what were some of the things that the, the existing team members did to get familiar with open world design and moving to a third person game? Um, well, I think a lot of us are, of course, also gamers. So we played a lot of other games that had open worlds or that were uh, more like RPGs. Um, so I think there was already a lot of sort of uh, appetite for doing something in that direction. Um, so I think it's it's just from player experience in a way, playing those other games that you so, sort of take that on and, and then see how you can uh, build something that feels more like your own. Um, we had a lot of different things that we wanted to try as well and everything sort of needs to click together at some point. Um, so I think it's mostly that, uh, and at the, the, I think the other important thing was that we um, we did some paper designs like, uh, okay, if you design an open world, like how do we distribute content? And we did something as simple as just on a sheet of paper with, um, uh, with cells, um, we basically calculated the distribution of content, like how often, like, every X meters, how often should players uh, encounter new content? So we went at it basically from a, almost like a math-like approach, very statistically and very organized way of designing the map and then building that in prototypes and building it in 3D and walking around and getting a feel for, okay, how does the pacing work uh, with the movement speed of Aloy and with uh, yeah, taking the camera view into account. So we... We basically just did so much prototyping in the first years uh, where we tried to make everything playable and get a feel for, okay, uh, yeah, does it click together and does it work? Um, so I think a, a large part also came from that, from just building it, basically. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And when you were creating those metrics, were there other open world games that you were looking at that you felt had a good balance of say, traversal to discovery? If I remember correctly, I think we looked at games like Skyrim. Hmm. Um, but I think by building um, building some of our own prototypes, we came to our, our, to our own uh, metrics. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was something like every, what was it, every 50 or 100 meters or something, we just discovered like, okay, Aloy is now climbing a rock and then you descend and then she's going through a forest and there's a watcher sort of passing the road and she's kind of amazed by how it animates and she moves on and then there's a tall neck stepping over the path and we had this whole demo uh, where we kind of just by playing through it, we felt like, okay, we want to have all these magic moments at a certain pace. It's almost like you make a trailer uh, then, or you make a movie, it has to have a certain pacing. And that's literally what we did. And that's how we, how we got to our own pacing, I think, and how we got to our own metrics. And, um, yeah. 
I'd love to go back to an anecdote I read about early development. And I read that when you all were prototyping the first concept for Horizon Zero Dawn, Enslaved came out by Ninja Theory, which also had a redheaded protagonist and uh, an open world approach. And I, I'm, I want to share that we actually went through exactly the same thing with Sunset Overdrive. We were building and getting ready to pitch Sunset Overdrive. And we there was another game that had almost exactly the same features that got announced. And our decision was to pull back and go in a completely different direction uh, with a different pitch for a while. And I, it sounds like y'all may have done that too. Can you talk about that period and, and what happened? Yeah, that was a, a sort of a difficult uh, period. Um, we had created a bunch of prototypes. We uh, had a high level sort of concept of the game. Uh, we knew what the key ingredients were, like Aloy, the red haired, uh, haired um, uh, machine hunter. Uh, we had tribes, uh, lush, overgrown ruins. So we had a lot of those uh, components. Um, and yeah, when we heard about that game, uh, that was a that was a, a really difficult moment where we wondered, like, um, how similar are we? Like on paper, we were very similar. And I think at some point, I think we realized that, um, and I don't know exactly how we saw that. Was that footage or how we exactly figured it out? But we did see that we were quite different in terms of the games. Um, and that it wasn't a big issue. But it was a moment where we uh, were doubting ourselves so much that we actually started coming up with different concepts. We mm. were basically abandoning Horizon at that point. We did new pitches uh, with a small team. Uh, uh, we made basically in a half year, we made a new concept video for a completely different game. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a very interesting concept as well. And then at a Sony summit, like a post E3 summit where all uh, uh, Sony developers uh, sort of gather, we presented both uh, concepts that we had. We uh, presented Horizon and we uh, presented, um, it was called Dark Science, that other project. And uh, I think a lot of people responded positively to both. So still we didn't know exactly. It was like half-half at that point. Uh, but the yeah the, the re reactions we got from uh, for Horizon and the number of people that came to us and talked about Horizon and how much they loved that and how fresh it felt etc that sort of that sort of tipped the balance and then we said okay let's just do it let's let's make this game and um, then it still took a few years to actually make it but um, yeah that was that was interesting yeah when that happens um, and I'm glad that we stuck to Horizon to be honest I think that's a great story for any developer who runs into a crisis of confidence for whatever reason, right? If you, if you, if you have a concept you're passionate about, it's about the execution ultimately, right? It's not whether it's close to some other concept because ultimately it's going to be, it's going to be different at the end. You're going to, it's going to evolve and become something yeah. really special, right? Absolutely. And you know, the, the, the story of Aloy turned out to be so different uh, than that, than that other game, you know, uh, and way we have the machines and the way we depict nature and just the whole world it's there's so many differences that i don't think they feel like the same game uh, at all i think oh so, yeah totally yeah. agree yeah so uh, you've been a game director for a long time and i'd love to know how has your role changed as your games have gotten bigger um that's a good question um i think of course because the team's are uh, a lot bigger than when we started. I am a little bit more detached from uh, from certain disciplines. Um, we have basically more layers in our organization. We have uh, basically regulars and seniors and principals, and then you have leads and uh, directors and then game directors. So there's this whole pyramid of people. Um, but I think what we... What I what I personally really try to do is to this even even though we might be making a game with like three hundred fifty people or something, I really try to work in such a way that it feels like we're still a small team, and that's hard to do at some points. But I really try to keep the sort of the the contact lines very very short, 
so because I, from my experience, like like you said, I've been around for quite a while d- doing this work. I've noticed that when I get too de- detached from the development team, I lose the sense of joy of making the games, basically. Um, I need to stay at the core and at the heart of what we are doing. So, uh, and I think in a way that I think probably uh, people kind of enjoy it, that we are not a very big bureaucratic kind of like big company where you have to go through many gates of approval for things, but that it feels kind of agile and small and and you can make quick decisions and you can iterate on stuff. Uh, It's sort of the small team mentality, but then applied to uh, like a a big team of 300 plus people. how do you it, stay? Doesn't, it doesn't always work, but that's at least it's an ambition and it's a feeling that I'm trying to at least uh, stay close to. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. And I, it seems like accessibility to you is a pretty important aspect of having that small team feel. Is that is that accurate? In what, in what way do you mean that? Well, if somebody has a question, right, even if it's a giant team, do you mm. are, are you always around to answer the question or give feedback? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Always, yes. Yes, and I, my role as a game director, um, it might be similar to what other companies, uh, development companies have as a creative director. Okay. Um, and I'm, I think a lot of creative directors are also more in charge of uh, how a game looks, like the visual style and maybe the technology behind it. But I'm more on the game design side. So I'm, I'm very close to the core of the how the game is designed. So I'm, I'm working directly with the designers uh, and the lead designer, um, basically that design the games. Um, but I'm also in close contact with the writers, uh, the writing team, and with uh, the audio leads and the musicians. So I I have a lot of sort of direct connections with, uh, with the team in that sense. And if they have questions, yeah, they know where to find me at any point. So... So on in your structure, there is no creative director. It's you are the game director overseeing the, the vision and the, and the gameplay? Yes. The, the role creative director doesn't exist at the Gorilla. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And uh, I look less after uh, art because uh, in a way I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, that's not really my sort of uh, expertise, I think, uh, if I can explain it like that. Uh, and I think we have such stellar art teams and art directors. Uh, there's no way I can do better than them. So, but it is a it, it is a matter, of course, to stay in close contact uh, with with our art directors, uh, to explain the vision of the game, and to make sure that everything they do sort of contributes to the to the vision. So ultimately, I am sort of looking at the game as a whole. How good is the game? How much fun is it to play? Uh, so it it is for me very much, uh, yeah, like. Um, I say it. It's it's basically working together. I, we don't look at so much like uh, he's above me or below me or whatever. We're basically just a team of people working, making a making a game together. So, what are some of the most important things that you do on a daily basis just to make sure the game's going to be a success? If you had just to name a couple things that are that you do every day. Um, well, very practically speaking, um, I. Now the commute, I, I, I travel to the office a little bit less frequently now because of COVID changed a lot of things. And of course, for, for many people, uh, I spent uh, two or three days uh, every week in the office, but I have a long commute. It's uh, almost three hours a day in total. Uh, but I spent my travel there in the morning uh, to the office. I make a list of what I basically want to do that day, what I want to achieve in a way. So I, have, I make this to-do list. I can spend an hour thinking about it. I'll look outside at other stuff and I'll kind of relax, but at the same time sort of mentally prepare for the day. Um, then throughout the day, I have uh, most of the time, I have just lots of meetings about new features, about playtesting. Um, I often make time, block out time to actually play the game, to play new prototypes and to give feedback. Um, basically, by the end of the day, when I travel home, um, I can work through all the emails, Slack messages, etc. That's basically how I close off the day. And then when I'm at home, I'm really at home. I don't have to work anymore uh, as much. Uh, in the past, I was different. But it's it's a great way of basically booting up, then having a busy day and then ramping down again. Um, 
and uh, yeah, that works that works quite well. And I think it depends also a bit on the phase of the project that you're in, of course, what kind of task you have. Um, if we're booting up something new, I'm more doing presentations or putting together like uh, briefs or vision documents or stuff like that. Uh, if the game is in a first playable state, I'll be spending more time actually playing all the prototypes or all, all the first versions of quests. Um, and I, I try to be a bit of a, like the spider in the web, also talking to a lot of people, making sure that things kind of gel and connect, like talking to the, uh, the writers, uh, to artists, to uh, designers, to make sure like, okay, this is the intended goal. And this, yeah, just like, let's make sure that everything kind of clicks together nicely. Um, so it's a little bit of a producer role almost at some points. Uh, I think, but that's, I think what a lot of game designers uh, have to do as well. You kind of have to be a little bit of a producer and manager to get, get stuff uh, in the game. That that's, that makes a lot of sense. And, and thanks for sharing all that. Also, I think it's great advice for any, any game director or creative director in terms of how you manage to create separation between work and home. That sounds great. Do you, yeah. do you, are you riding a train? I'm assuming you're not riding lists yeah. while you're driving. <laughs> no, the, the 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 drive would be impossible. There's a when I leave the village here where I live, the, I would immediately end up in a long uh, what do you call it, a traffic jam. Uh, uh, so it starts right out of the door, the traffic jam. So I I drive my car to the train station and take a train, and it's almost like a direct uh, connection to the office. Uh, it's one hour by train, so it's it's great. And indeed, in the train, you can you can actually do some work. Um, yeah, I know the the, the uh, in the past uh, things were, I think um, I said um, I had to learn sort of the hard way to um, take it a bit more easy uh, in 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 terms of workload and to not spend too many nights and weekends making the games. Um, I think it, it for me everything started out as a hobby. Um, making games uh, when your hobby becomes your profession things get a little bit more complicated uh, lines blur and I, at some point I got overworked as well uh, so I just uh, had to change a, a lot of things um, especially making sure that uh, there's downtime uh, time doing nothing uh, and I think yeah making games is so much about problem solving um, I notice when I'm basically at home and I'm still problem solving uh, from work, it's already a sign like, okay, it's good, but not too much. I have to stop doing that at some point because it just takes over everything at some point and it can be, yeah, it can be, it can be too much. But yeah. do, you, do you find escape in other games? I do, but um, uh, to be honest, well, I, I, I try to play as much as possible but i because i have a family uh, with uh, young kids uh, you know i yeah my night starts around 10 10 p.m <laughs> more or less when everybody's asleep uh, how many hours do you have left then to and what yeah. what do you choose to do do you play a game and watch a movie on netflix or whatever uh, and same in weekends it's 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 sometimes hard to find the time to to play a lot of games um but what i enjoy more i think for downtime and to really kind of relax and unwind is just make my own prototypes and make my own sort of uh, tests and i must have more than 100 uh, maybe 200 prototypes of stuff uh lying around because i've been doing that pretty much for the past 30 years i think uh so i putting on music, trying to program something, trying to, to create some art, and it will never leave this door, basically, right? <laughs> it's just for myself. Um, but it's a great uh, sort of uh, brain training exercise. Uh, it's like uh, trying to solve puzzles uh, in a way. Because I, I really don't know really how to program, for example, so I have to look it up, I have to try it. And for me, that's a better way to relax than actually uh, play games. Uh, I think playing games for me sometimes feels almost more like work. Yeah, uh, It's harder, I think, to really relax. Uh, I, I imagine it's probably hard not to analyze the other games. I know yes. that's what I do when I play them. Sometimes yeah. it's it's you're yeah. looking at things that they did well or didn't do well and comparing it to the, your own stuff. So yeah. I think it's great yeah. that you, you prototype and uh, take on, kind of add that creativity outside of work. That sounds fantastic. 
yeah, I think that's the magic of making games. It is always, till this day, it kind of surprises me how you basically from nothing can just create a game. I mean, if if you have a bit of software, you can program something, you can make a little bit of art and you're there. You ha- you can have something interactive and you can make it uh, quite magical in a few few evenings even. Like in one, most of my prototypes are of one weekend basically. And then I get that feeling that I want to get across and then I abandon it because it's going to be too much work to actually turn it into a game. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, I yeah, really love doing that. And, uh, yeah, That's fantastic. Well, I want to turn to Horizon Forbidden West just because it's recent and it has been so successful. And it is nice to talk to somebody about the process of making a big sequel. And I think it's a dream that a lot of us developers have because it probably means that we experienced success with the first game. But I also personally believe that people take for granted how challenging it is to repeat the success of that first game. People just assume, hey, you made a sequel. Of course, it's going to be successful. That's not the case. So what do you think is necessary to create a successful sequel? Um, yeah, creating the sequel uh, to uh, Zero Dawn, I think. Well, first we had to understand um, like what, what, what do, like internally, like what do we feel like we could improve? What should we improve? What should we do differently? So basically we looked at it from different angles. Um, we looked at press reviews, we did an extensive analysis, like, okay, what did the press say? And we made sort of a whole report out of that. Um, we also looked at uh, player feedback. Uh, and like I said, we had our own list of things that we really wanted to uh, improve. It, of course, we were very happy with how, it's, uh, how it was received. But there's always room for improvement and there's always, uh, yeah, well, yeah. Th- ways to make things better at the same time i think for the sequel we wanted to find a way to do things uh, like from a kind of a fresh start that's why the forbidden was as a title and a location was quite interesting uh, immediately kind of sparks sort of in Im- the imagination like forbidden west it sounds like it's dangerous i probably shouldn't go there so that's why i'm going to go there um and it sounds mysterious and i think Finding something like that uh, for a sequel can be like a big, uh, almost like a pillar, a driver that you can then tap into for a lot of the other features and ideas and uh, the story. Um, So the other thing I think that was important was to understand like, who are we making the sequel for? Is it for uh, returning players? Is it for new players or is it for both? And then if it's for both, and it was for both, uh, like how do you cater to both those audiences? Like, because they come in so differently. Um, So we did a lot of appeal testing. I think we did in total like 16 rounds where we tested the game throughout development for like two weeks in a row. Uh, And we had groups of people uh, that were composed of like five new players and uh, five uh, recurring players, players that had already played Horizon up to a certain point. So we could verify if the opening of the game uh, would basically satisfy both types of players. And we made uh, a lot of iterations, of course, based on that feedback. Uh, So we had from the start, we knew what our target audience was. And I think that's important, of course, for any sequel um, or for any game, basically, that you're making. You sort of have to know who you're making it for, I I think. Um, But it's not easy. I can tell you that <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. Um, when the reviews, uh, the Metacritic in a way is always important uh, for us. Um, so we were quite nervous. I, for Horizon 1, I wasn't nervous at all uh, for some strange reason because it was our first game. I had no idea what to expect. Uh, but when the game, when the reviews came in, uh, actually, yeah, it was sort of got emotional. I didn't expect it, but it, it did more to me than I expected. Um, and I was very happy with the result because it was our first open world RPG that we have, action RPG that we made. Uh, for Forbidden West, the, the bar was way higher somehow. The expectations were higher. The pressure was higher. Um, so I think we were a lot more nervous this time around um, for seeing the, the scores. Uh, from Metacritic, for example. Uh, but in the end, I think it's, it's, I feel like it's a great achievement to sort of be consistent in the quality. Um, so, yeah. 
Well, you, you certainly, I think you elevated the quality actually from, from in the sequel in, in a lot of areas. And I, but I wanted to go back to your analysis of the audience and assuming that you have uh, some semi-equal number of new players and returning players, is there a metric you use for deciding how much is going to be new in the game versus how much is going to be reused in terms of mechanics? I only ask this, let me give you an example. We, I know that in some of the game's sequels we've made, we've made decisions to change up key mechanics in the game, and it has really upset players. Players who got used to them, familiar with them, and wanted more. And we did it because we just felt this urge, this need to be different without mm -hmm. really applying any kind of uh, true logic to what we were going to change. And I was wondering if there's any advice you have for folks about adhering to existing mechanics and then being willing to jump off the cliff and change things. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I don't know. Maybe because we also did a sequel from Killzone 2 to Killzone 3. I think we picked up some stuff there. Like maybe we made a few wrong choices <laughs> in a way um, where we kind of forgot how important it is if players really get into your game and they get really attached to sort of mechanics and how, how things operate, that you cannot just change that. You cannot just change, change the rules. Um, I think that's probably, I think through that game, those games, I think we sort of learned to sort of really stick to the basics of to the foundation of the game and build on the foundation. I think we had for Horizon, we had much clearer uh, sort of design guidelines and, and uh, like a vision of like, for example, we said like Aloy always needs to feel, if you control Aloy, it needs to feel like the player is in control. Um, so that basically means that we don't have long animations where the animation is controlling Aloy and you're basically putting the control on the table because yeah, the game is, is doing it for you. Um, and it is... Yeah, so the, 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 the controls are basically what you put in is what Aloy does. And I think that probably trickled through that we stick, stuck to that principle also for the, for the sequel, which basically means that we didn't make huge changes to the core because we had that, we kind of felt like we have it nailed, like how, how you control Aloy. So we mostly look at adding new features on top instead of changing the core in that uh, aspect, uh, like expanding uh, the melee system, uh, adding new weapon types, uh, new uh, damage types, um, uh, yeah, uh, revamping the skill tree. That was a tricky one. Um, also having to reset everything. I think that was a bit of a design challenge. Like, how do we reset everything? And how do people feel about it? If you come into a sequel, why, why the, uh, how did Aloy lose all the gear? <laughs> and all the favorites, uh, like the Shield Weaver costume, that was a, one that we were very worried about, like, like how players would feel about that one, losing the most powerful outfit from the first game and not having it in the second. We, we tried to spin it and give it a little bit of a story, like, yeah, she travels light and uh, yeah. the, the, the outfit is kind of broken. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but then, that's, 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 that's tr yeah, tricky, tricky stuff. Well, as a player, when I started the game, I was really hoping that you would do that, and I thought you made it pretty seamless and pretty quick, right? It was, okay, I'm expecting to lose everything so I can rebuild my character and it's going to be fun. It's one of the most fun aspects of the game. And so I, I thought y'all did it really elegantly. Um, and, and, you know, another thing, just because you are talking about this, the revamped skill tree, it was, is nice to see a different visual and structural take on the skill tree because it, it did signal that, okay, you're not repeating you as a player aren't going to be sort of retreading old ground. This is exciting and fresh and new. And I, one of my favorite aspects of beginning the game is you have a message which reads, you can acquire enough skill points to fully learn all skill trees. Like you say that up front. And I uh, was, I felt relieved uh, because I go into games feeling a lot of stress about the choices I'm going to have to make about building a character in, in any quasi RPG like scenario. So why do you think, because I'm going to go deep here on this particular issue, why do you think so many games give you fewer skill points than you need to fill out all your skill trees? Is this an old school convention that we just can't break from? 
I think I think so. Yeah. Um, I think often those games I think also have like a what they call a respec uh, option where you can yeah. you feel like okay I've uh, bought the wrong stuff I need to reassign it differently because I'm kind of limited and I don't know what I'm gonna get. I think with Horizon, we always try to be more forgiving and more open and uh, leave it more up to the player how they want to kind of cater, uh, how to say it, uh, yeah, f- form their character. Uh, we're not that kind of hardcore. Uh, I think we're a bit more accessible in, in, mm-hmm. that, uh, in that area. Um, yeah, I think it's more from an accessibility point of view that we steer a bit in a different direction with that. Um, and... Yeah. Well, speaking of accessibility, you also made a lot of, of great accessibility features available to all the players. And uh, the quality of life improvements that sort of come from those accessibility features were made a big difference for me. And I'll, I'll just let me give you a couple examples mm-hmm. just because I appreciated them. Like splitting out vibration intensity for different events. That, that's huge. Uh, turning off the trigger effect of the controller to prevent fatigue. That was awesome. And my favorite was turning on climbing annotations, right? Okay. That That's amazing. I have it on all the time because while I really love the idea of being able to climb everywhere, seeing <laughs> seeing the handholds for me, for whatever reason, is uh, it's just, it makes life better. Even, and I'm okay, I'm okay with that. I don't need the, the complete immersion. I, I kind of yeah. want to get to my destination <laughs> with minimal effort. Yeah. Was this, a, were, were those types of, Decisions difficult for the team to make? Oh, no. No. Oh, no. The, the, one of the easiest decisions, I think, to make. Um, yeah, I think through playtesting, we find these, uh, we have these observations. Um, but also t- when a team plays themselves, when designers play. And sometimes we have a, sometimes it comes from a different uh, angle. It's like people, designers or people in the team just have different opinions. Like, Mm-hmm. I think it should be the climb uh, handholds annotation should be on always. And not, somebody else says, no, I think it should be off. And only if you focus ping, then you will see them. And then we have to make a decision like, okay, are we going to go left or right with this? And then we say, okay, we're going to do both, but one of them will be in the options menu. So it's also a way for us, I think, to uh, sort of settle. So people that love that feature internally, they will still have it, but they will have to switch it on. Uh, so that's also where it often comes from. Um, that's great. It's nice to hear. I mean, and did you did you pull any of those quality of life and accessibility improvements from from reviews as well from the last game? Or no, they just, I, as you I said, think it's from- mostly from user uh, user uh, from players that we got feedback, and from specific accessibility tests that we've done as well. Mm. For people with certain uh, uh, impairments uh, or certain motor skills that they don't have, like difficulties controlling the uh, the dual sense controller, for example. Um, yeah. So we did specific tests with that as well. We, yeah, uh, through Sony, we get uh, nice guidelines as well about how to implement certain things. So, and we have designers that yeah, just specifically uh, focus on these these kind of uh, topics as well. Um, yeah, that well, that's, that that's put these features in and and org- yeah, get them get work with programmers and and uh, interface uh, designers to get them in the in the game. Yeah, I hope that other the designers look at Forbidden West as a great model for how to how to go deep on accessibility options. They really they're great and and they are applicable to well well as you said, it's great for folks who have accessibility issues. It's also great for any any player. To, to take a look at all the options and to customize yeah, yeah. how the game plays. Absolutely. And I think that's sometimes a misconception that, yeah, some people think like uh, accessibility options are only for people with maybe, uh, yeah, that uh, if you have, uh, I don't know, uh, if you if you have a lack of control in the hand, for example, in a, or if you have color blindness or something, but it's it goes way beyond that. It is, I think it's really for everybody. Uh, Think uh, like difficulty settings. There are so many things that you can tweak in uh, in our games. Uh, it's just to make the game more enjoyable for for, for people. And uh, yeah, I think uh, we we 
we don't shy away from having too many options in the menus. Basically, we just keep adding more. And I, I personally really like that when you can just tweak, go in and tweak it to your own liking and uh, make the game uh, more fun that way. Well, it goes back to sort of what you were saying too about having a, a creating a broad appeal and more of a welcoming uh, approach for players across the game and its mechanics, I, I, which I feel as I'm playing through the game. I never feel like the game is punishing me. I feel like I'm... If anything goes wrong, it's usually because I've made a dumb decision and have have pushed things where the game has been telling me everything I need to know. And it's really up to me to succeed or fail. And it's a it's a great for me. Anyway, I'm just I'm gushing a little bit because I know that there are different uh, philosophies on this mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of how games approach uh, player agency. Uh, but I, I really appreciate the road y'all have taken. Yeah, it's. Um, I think we do a lot of, again, like I said earlier, we do so much playtesting as well, and we want to have like maximum immersion for the players. We want them to really be in the game and not to be sort of taken out. Mm-hmm. And I think as soon as we normally notice that testers, players are kind of losing uh, sort of in, in, we see that the engagement kind of drops and they're maybe looking at the phone or doing something else something has happened in the game that kind of broke the immersion for the, for them and that's that for, yeah that's a that's a big red flag i think that's where we try to put stuff in the game to help to either iron out the issue or to make sure that a bug doesn't happen anymore or to add a helper or a call out or something else whatever is needed to make sure that the player actually stays in the game and that we uh, make sure that we keep their attention because then we know they're they're enjoying the game because they're in there they're, they're really soaked into the game and I think that's ultimately I think why we are adding these features as well yeah um, to increase basically enjoyability of the game enjoyment of the game well uh, you mentioned immersion and 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 keeping players attached to the game one of the things for me that kept me hooked was not just the story which I'll get to in a minute but the characters and the increased fidelity of the character models and the performances. I mean, while I thought Zero Dawn was great, uh, Forbidden West really took a big step forward. So, And, and I w- I'm just constantly looking forward to the next conversation because the characters emote so believably in the game. So what were some of the technical improvements that the team made to create characters that have gotten significantly closer to photoreal? Yeah, the... Um... I have to say, as a as a developer, when I'm sort of re- when at certain points in development, when I was reviewing the game, I was also like so amazed by the quality of the, some of the faces that I was seeing that were get, being implemented, that I basically just didn't even listen to the conversation anymore. <laughs> I was just staring at the model. So, um, I think technology has improved. Our pipelines for the, creating this has improved. Our the skills of our artists have improved, um, uh, and I think yeah. I've, I think it's really awesome that we managed to pull this off, this level of quality uh, for the, also considering the scope of this game, uh, mm-hmm. like how big it is, how many characters, how much dialogue there's in there. Um, and then also, of course, considering that this was all created uh, to a large degree while there was a pandemic uh, going on. Um, so that actually, yeah, that, that, that led to, some problems where we were capturing this data, like the, the face animations or the body animations or the voices. At some point, it was all captured in different locations, uh, actors' homes or in a stage in, somewhere in Sweden or something. And then we had to piece back all this information. We had to piece it back into one thing, into one character that felt like realistic and believable. Uh, so that took a lot of effort to get everything back together. Um, and yeah, I think we're super happy with the end results. And uh, one, one big decision for the game was also that every conversation had to be of high quality because previously for Horizon Zero Dawn, we had sort of tiers in terms mm-hmm. of conversations. Like you had like uh, your A class for cinematics, but if it was just of a sort of a, an errant quest, it would be maybe a, almost like an automated conversation uh, where uh, it's basically a selection of pool uh, uh, out of a pool of animations. That's basically what puts the character together. But for uh, Forbidden West, we wanted to up the quality across the board, um, mm. and that that 
took again a lot of effort, but uh, it, it definitely helps with the immersion, I think, and the believability of the characters and listening to the stories. Uh, so. I, totally. I, you know, I couldn't, I had trouble telling the difference between Golden Path uh, scenes and quest scenes. I mean, I, I feel like most of us who are in game, the game design business automatically lump the scenes into those buckets. But it seemed like to me, you, as you said, there was, you put the same amount of effort in. And so did you mocap every single scene in the game? I believe so. I wasn't personally involved uh, too much in this in this particular process, uh, but I believe everything is mocap. Yeah, and uh, it was our uh, studio art director uh, uh, Jan Bart van Beek who said like all the conversation has to be of the highest quality, and we were all like, oh, what does this mean for our schedules? What are we gonna do? Like, what does this mean? Um, so it was a bit of a scary yeah. statement. But in the end, looking back, it, I think yeah, it was great. Well, uh, that's a pretty pretty challenging constraint that you ha you have a limited amount of time and money, right? And then you have an immense story with a lot of dialogue, and you have the sort of the statement: "We're going to make everything the highest possible quality." How do you? What yeah. are some of the creative solutions you you came up for to to work within those constraints? Well, I think. I think in the end, I think we shipped one year later than we initially wanted. So, you know, uh, we had some solutions, but it also, and it, it's also, it's not just because of this, but it's also the pandemic that made things just slower uh, because we had to change uh, how we worked. Uh, I think maybe we worked, uh, yeah, not at 100% uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, but But this decision... I think also increased basically the volume of work that we had to, uh, of course, uh, get back into the game, uh, mm -hmm. to high quality to shippable quality. Um, and um, yeah, I think over the course of development, uh, we also had to develop new tools. Uh, so those were part of the sort of the, the, the solutions. We had to develop new tools and pipelines to be able to, again, to piece back all the information that we get, were getting from different sources. So it was just a lot of data that had to be uh, sort of digested and reworked into the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'll, I want to give a shout out to whoever is responsible for your costume implementation as well. You're, first of all, you're the costume designers, if you have costume designers, are, are very, very talented. I haven't seen any game put as much focus on truly unique clothes per MPC, as you all did. Uh, so do you actually work with professional costume designers? Um, I think we have uh, people, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure, but we have a, a visual design team. Okay. Uh, we have character design artists. Uh, so we have a lot of specialists in this area. Mm -hmm. I don't know, to be honest, exactly what their background is. Um, but yeah, I... I, I agree. <laughs> the, the, the outfits look stunning. Uh, and it's great because we had, the tribes are so important for Horizon yeah. and uh, to discover new tribes and to go through the, through, yeah, through the landscapes and discover new people and seeing them in their, all their, uh, their nice outfits, uh, I think, really helps with the uh, sort of the, the sense of uh, believability, the sense of discovery. Uh, so, yeah, it's another great aspect, I think, for, uh, for the game. That sense. Yeah. Well, kudos to the team for that. I mean, certainly it's one of those things that pulls pulls you in when you're interacting with these characters, just kind of being distracted by the the layering and the intricacy of their costume. And of course the the variety. I mean, every single character seems like it seems like you're using some pretty cool technical tricks to to vary every single headdress or uh, necklace or you name it or armband in the game. So I, I didn't see repetition, which was impressive. And, and speaking of, of not seeing repetition, uh, I also was really impressed with your dialogue trees. You've, it seems that you must have paid, a, the team must have paid a lot of attention to temporal consistency so that if you talk to a character later in the game, even though it's an open world game, they weren't saying something that seemed kind of inconsistent time-wise, like referencing something you hadn't done or, uh, or, or not referencing, or sorry, 
a lot of times player characters would reference things that I had done in a way that I thought was really clever. So how did you keep all that straight across such a big game with both quests and golden path NPCs? Yeah, I think that's, that's, uh, that's, uh, I think all, uh, all efforts from the, from the writing team, um, I think also, yeah, when I played through the game early versions as well, I was really surprised about some of these reactive comments that NPCs sometimes make. Like at some point I was flying, was a f- very early on, I was flying with uh, uh, the flying mounts through one of the starting areas uh, and I was playing a side quest. And the character I was playing the side quest with was commenting on me being on the flying mount. I was like, what? How <laughs> did you know I'm on the flying mount? <laughs> like, it's like, I was so surprised by that reaction. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's a lot of extra work indeed. And I think our writing team is doing an excellent job of keeping track of the, all that. Um, I, I haven't seen the, the data sheets or how they exactly do it. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's great that we have room and time uh, to add those extras. It's, it's, those details are super important, I think. Well, another thing that really makes the game sticky, and you mentioned this early on, is combat. And I, I, shooting has always felt fantastic in Horizon, but you know, melee definitely seemed to has, has improved a lot. And you mentioned this earlier too. I love the combos that you added in the skill tree. But the melee itself, just the the what you're doing when you're just swinging your sphere, feels a lot better. So, were there tweaks that you made to timing and camera and audio that help with that? Uh, yes, I think we pretty much started over uh, with everything related to melee. Um, mm. So a lot of, yeah, I think almost, I think we spent the uh, full development cycle on everything related to the melee system. Um, and it's yeah, it's the the swings, it's the combos, but it's also the reactions of the NPCs that have to be animated and timed. And uh, uh, yeah, like you can knock somebody down, you can finish it. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a there's a, yeah, a lot of effort went into that, and also specifically into the feel of melee. Uh, together also with especially on PlayStation Five with the haptic uh, and the yeah the controller feedback. And the sound and the effects, um, yeah, it was a, uh, yeah. Were there times that you felt like you just y- y'all weren't getting it? Um, yeah, I think in the beginning with the uh, the combo system, um, the the inputs were very complicated when we, our very first version. Um, so. Um, yeah, I think only the designer that built it knew how it worked pretty much, <laughs> nobody else. So we went through uh, a lot of cycles, basically making it more and more, again, accessible. So people would, uh, that it would become more intuitive in a way, yeah. and more easier, more easy to engage with. And we have seen also through playtests that um, our players have uh, certain play styles if, if they play melee in other games, they would probably also try it in Horizon. If they play a lot of stealth in other games, they would also try it in Horizon. So we try to develop sort of uh, multiple play styles uh, for different types of players. Um, and um, yeah, I think for the players that what we saw in playtest, players that, that played more melee-based characters, uh, they seem to really enjoy what we uh, put in there. Uh, so that's good. Well, you've got a lot of melee, a lot of shooting throughout a big game. So, how do you how do you keep combat setups feeling good for over fifty hours? What do you think is the what do you think is the most important elements of, of combat just to keep players excited about the next setup they're going to encounter? For Horizon, I think one of the key drivers is the new machines. Um, so we always, uh, from the sort of pretty much the, the start, um, we look at the map. When we have a map, uh, we look at the map and see, like, okay, how is the player going to progress through the map? Uh, put, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, in the most likely uh, way, uh, as far as you can estimate that. Uh, and then, how do we? Uh, which machines do we have, and how do we kind of distribute them over the, the maybe thirty hours that they're going to play through the map? And how do we make sure that they keep encountering uh, new machines, but also in new setups? 
in different setups, different circumstances? How do we improve the uh, required st- skill level? How do we make the, the encounters more complicated or more sophisticated? Um, and how do we pair up the player progression path uh, to that? So it's, I think it's mostly driven by the enemies that the players face. And then, yeah, seeing how we connect the player to it and how do you, um, how does Aloy basically expand her uh, tools and weapons and etc. Enable to be, yeah, in order to be able to counter that. Um, well, that and that makes a lot of sense, and that's a nice luxury to have to be able to lay out all of the setups across the game and and the where you're introducing new enemies. What happens when you have sort of a mid-production decision, like adding a new weapon? Like I don't know when you added the spike thrower, but if you were to add something like that in, what does it do to combat setups, and how do you all manage modifications um, in, deep, not- in deep production? Yeah. I, 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 let me let me give you some more context. Mm-hmm. I say this because I know that we, on every game we run into this challenge, where if somebody has a great idea in the middle of production, you've already laid out most of the combat setups. And to introduce something new throws off the balance completely for everything. Um, yeah, I think in general it doesn't happen that often that middle of production we add something new like okay. that. Uh, I think we're pretty locked into our feature set from the beginning. Well, not the very beginning, of course, but once we go into production. Okay. Of course, you don't know what the balance is yet of a lot of things because the balance balancing is something I think we do throughout production until we basically until we ship. So we keep turning the dials and uh, pushing the sliders until we're happy with 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 the balance. Um, I think that's also something we check through telemetry, through playtests. Uh, we check basically the the combat scores, the challenge scores on on encounters, and also when we play through things ourselves. Uh, something we keep an eye on. Um, yeah, I think. I yeah, I think it's just continuous balancing as well when that happens. Um, and um, yeah, for a game you... as big as Horizon, it's it's challenging. But uh, we have we have we have good combat designers that can do that. Oh, that's as I was getting to how do you how you can you know how you practically play through the game. If it takes, let's just say, twenty hours to play through the Golden Path, and you've and and you're you want to know is the game balanced? Do you have a, a team of testers who are only focused on, say, Golden Path and are giving feedback, or do you have some sort of automated approach to letting you know as the game director that we're still we still have a nice progression curve, a nice sort of. I mean, I'm sure you have lots of curves that you track. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's multiple ways how we track that. Um, the designers, uh, combat designers, they work with uh, very kind of uh, complicated or uh, ex- uh, say it, uh, detailed Excel sheets where a lot of the formulas and a lot of the things are calculated, mm-hmm. um, where the values are kind of matched up uh, between certain things, um, including skill progression is in there, uh, scaling uh, it's also in there. Uh, but actually translating that to when, when it's in-game and if it feels correct, it, that's something else. And I think you can only see that by actually playing it. Uh, we have QA indeed going through it. Uh, QA, though, mostly checks uh, if it's even progressible, yes or no, if you can get through it, uh, and if the game is really functional. Uh, but I think we mostly rely on playtesting and, uh, and playing the game ourselves again. Uh, before every playtest that we do, uh, I always go through the game myself. I take, uh, well, it takes me, normally it would take me uh, like two days to play all the main quests if I just kind of go through them quickly. Uh, but a normal test takes me about a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for every round of playtesting, I would go through it. Uh, we often also organize that for uh, uh, people in the company to join, uh, especially leads. We're very keen on having leads to also participate and then more specifically design leads to, to, to play along so they can see, okay, all my designs, how did they end up in the game and how is it coming together and sort of uh, how much fun is the game or not. Uh, so there's a lot of, yeah, sort of different types of testing that we do uh, in different formats. Um, and is there uh, anything that you do to 
incentivize people to play, to spend three days, five days playing through the game? I, I ask this somewhat facetiously because everybody has a lot to do, right? All the time. And though we want to play the game, sometimes it's difficult to, to force ourselves to jump in. Yeah, it's no, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just try to keep reminding people that uh, our end product is, is a game. Our end product is not uh, a specific model or a specific song or a specific animation. <laughs> Our end product is the game, and we are all responsible for the game, basically. So I, I just tried to keep explaining through all the years that I've been uh, in this uh, line of work. Like it's super important that we all play the game and, and see what 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 we are actually exactly making and what what everybody is contributing towards to. So. We, uh, for example, in a few weeks, um, uh, I would book our cinema and play the game for a couple of days, but I invite various people and let them know I'm playing the game, join in, mm. uh, have a look. So yeah, try to sort of set an example of like, we all need to take time to play the game. Um, and it's hard indeed with schedules. Uh, there's always deadlines. Uh, if you're working towards a, a play test, it's basically a deadline. It's uh, that we used playtests as as our milestones, basically. Mm -hmm. so previously, for the Killzone games, we had uh, schedules driven by milestones. For Horizon, we changed it. Uh, we threw threw the milestones out of the window and basically said, like, let's do playtests. The playtests are the milestone because you have to prepare a build. Uh, the build has to be of decent quality. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you, everybody knows that their game, uh, the, the content that they're making will be played by actual gamers. There will be scores. So there's extra external pressure to the team almost. So everybody does their best to make a good uh, build. Uh, that helps in the end and also with having a, a, a build of a sort of quality by the time you release because you've been continuously making sure that everything stays at a certain quality level or have been improving, ironing out bugs. Um, and that means we have a build uh, that's pretty much always playable, which also lowers the barrier. And um, people basically can't have the excuse like, there's no build, I can't play it. Well, there is a build <laughs> because it's there for the playtest. So, uh, you know, uh, we're trying to remove all barriers in that uh, sense. Uh, that's, that's a great approach. So how often do you have those playtests? Um, for Forbidden West, I think we did them every six to eight weeks. Okay. Yeah, so we did 16, 16 rounds. Uh, and each playtest is uh, about 10 days, so two weeks. Wow. Uh, it's long, um, but uh, it's a big game. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, the nice thing is uh, because we do a lot of the testing in the US and we're based in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, uh, but because of the time difference, uh, for example, in the U.S., the test would start on a Monday, uh, uh, normal day on a Monday. Um, and then we get the data in, basically. It's for us, it's, at, it's being played at night, basically, for us. So when we come in on Tuesday, we have a fresh report and we have all the data that we can look at. And we can immediately also action on the feedback. So after the two weeks, we pr pr pretty much already know what has happened. And we have already actioned on a lot of the things um, and uh, already applied a lot of the fixes and changes and tweaks and made balancing changes, et cetera. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a really, I, I really like the, the whole process. Uh, yeah, it sounds really efficient. Yeah. And I, I want to just end with one more question for, for you on just more advice for others. And it's for anybody who's interested in following in your footsteps as a game director. What advice do you have for folks who someday dream of running a big team making big games? Uh, that's a that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, I, um, I think in in general, I think it's always important for people to figure out what they really like doing. Um, I mean, if you're if you're in game development and you find out that you're very interested in art, more in art and animation than in maybe actually in in the game itself, then I would sort of advise against going in the game director role, because I think game director role should be very wide. 
um, I think you you would have to be very interested in the story, in the music, in 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 everything basically, in in all disciplines. You would have to have uh, a bit of a sort of a bit of a feel for it, and also enjoy those kind of things and have ideas for those those areas as well so you, you can actually give some direction to the teams because if you're game directing for example and you have no clue of what you want to do again for example with the music how is the audio team basically going to work where do they get the vision uh, direction from do they come up with themselves and then if they give it back to the game director uh, what what is his reply you know you you have to have answers, so it's it's not a simple, straightforward job in that sense. Um, so I, I, I think uh, getting familiar with a lot of different disciplines, uh, different areas, uh, but ultimately, I think it's just like how do you feel about the game? What kind of uh, and yeah, the, like I said earlier, game is the end. The game is the end product. Like you have you have to feel very responsible. I think for that. For, for making a game to a high quality, but mostly also a game that's just very enjoyable to play and that, that leaves an impression uh, to players. Uh, if that's your cup of tea, that's what you're after, I think then the game director role is, uh, is I think, uh, a good choice. That's great advice. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing everything that you did today. My pleasure. And congratulations again to you and the team on Forbidden West. I'm very excited to see what's coming next to in the horizon sort of franchise. I know there's probably not a whole lot you can talk about, but no. <laughs> it really it's, it's amazing what you all have created because it is hard, so hard making new IP these days and, and you all have nailed it. Cool. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.